I want to thank all of you for, for being here, and especially also to thank all of those who are online or sharing with us this morning and part of our, of our, of our worship service. So I really want to welcome all of you, and, and it's great to share this time um, together. I want to mention that we are grieving with our dear friend Harry Ruff, uh, one of the deacons of this congregation, whose mother passed away just uh, in the last couple of days. And um, Harry also, this la at the end of last July, suffered the loss of his dad, Harry Sr. And um, he, Harry was just so diligent and loving in the way that he cared for each of them before their death. So please pray for him and Maria. This is, um, this is a difficult time. And I want to um, echo the, the mention of my name in our, in our prayer um, to ask for your prayers for me this week. You saw me trudge over there and get this stool. This is a symbol of the surgery that, uh, that I'm going to have. At least I hope. We'll see whether it actually goes through in this time of COVID. But if nothing blocks it, I'm scheduled to have surgery on my lower back. Uh, this coming Thursday, so I don't have to sit on a stool up here, um, and my legs can stand for me to stand up for the, the time of, of preaching. I don't like it, even though it's nice and comfortable, so I may just get a taller stool and sit on it anyway. I don't know. It's, it is pretty good. Um, uh, the, uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks, uh, Kyle and Carl and Jason are going to be sharing in the messages that are, that are coming up. Um, love the, the scripture reading that, uh, well, I, just so many things in the worship service that we've shared so far have just uh, been so uplifting and, and carrying us forward to, to this, this time. I hope that you have a, a handout of the, uh, the notes for the for the uh, sermon this morning that has the text that you heard Kyle read uh, in a slight, very slightly different translation uh, and uh, uh, that, that's my own that I'm going to be using through, through this time, but gives the possibility of comparing different things. We are, as you know, uh, in, the, in the sermons that I'm bringing, the messages, I've, we're journeying with Luke. And we're journeying with Luke. I think a proper way to say it really for, and this is from in Luke's point of view, really, we're journeying into Jesus. He's the one who had radically changed Luke's own life and had brought him into a whole new relationship, a new understanding of himself, a new identity and everything. And Luke wants us each, as readers of his gospel, to experience that, that process, to experience something of the, the challenge of it, and something of, especially for our passage this morning, something of the quandary that Jesus posed for his first followers. Um, we're reading this text um, at a distance. It's a distance that I doubt Luke could have imagined. Today is, of course, 2022. That's nearly 2,000 years after Luke sat down and put that reed pen to papyrus. Imagine someone reading the latest thing that you wrote, your latest email, 
or, uh, or something more substantial that, that you wrote, or listening to this, or reading this, uh, this message in the year 4022. Um, wow. 4022. I can't even begin to think what our world will be like. But human beings, God willing, will be here and will have something of the same struggles and challenges that we do and that Luke did. And yet the journey that he, that he leads us on still has power 2,000 years later to challenge us. Luke, I, I really want to emphasize, Luke understands what he's trying to do. And he does not compromise with trivial things, with trivial explanations. He is not trying to explain Jesus to us. He wants us across time and cultures, if he could have imagined that crossing, to walk in the crowds around Jesus, to feel their questions, our questions, to be discombobulated by what Jesus says and by what he does. To be pushed to really see Jesus. Not that everybody around Jesus saw, but some did. That has been Luke's experience. That's what he wants for us. Because in seeing Jesus, he came to recognize God. And to recognize God's unexpectable and amazing love to remake any ideas of God that we had before, to remake them now in the light of Jesus, complete with all our questions and our quandaries and our fascination and our expectations that caused people to form all of those crowds around Jesus. You have to just think about the things that, that are described. Jesus goes in, in the passage that we had last week, Jesus is going into a little town of name, but he's got a huge crowd. That goes with him from one town to another. What would it take for you to wander around from one town to another uh, with anybody? You know, just, just walking between towns. They want to stay with the crowd that's going with him. Now, towns or villages may be closer together than a lot of our towns, but, but still, just think of what that entailed for people. That they... They stayed with him in this. And um, on our journey so far, Luke has led us with the crowds through Nazareth, as you remember. And I don't want to take too much time on thinking back, but I'd always like first to sort of see the journey that we're on. Through Nazareth and the familiarity of the, the, the hometown neighbors, but also then the reversal of that familiarity to rejection. He's taken this with him to Capernaum and the amazing healings that he had, the calling of that fearful fisherman whose name was Simon and who became Peter, calling him to follow him. We've watched the leading teachers of Jewish law in the area. Some of the Pharisees in the area come to realize how different Jesus' vision of God was from their own over distinctive issues. That, that really mattered to them, of forgiving sins, of welcoming sinners, of purity laws, of fasting, of rigorous observance of the Sabbath. 
And their disagreements, as we've seen, solidify into real opposition. They want to do something about this man. We listen to Jesus' amazing sermon on the plain, and we've talked about it quite a bit. And then watch, as we did last week, a, a Gentile centurion, a captain in the army, so to speak, recognize Jesus' authority with a faith that Jesus says amazes him. And then there was that moment. It was the last of that text that we had last week. And it comes just before our text for today. And it's kind of referred back to in the first sentence of our text. When Jesus and all of those around him are entering a town, just as a widow's son's corpse is being carried out to his tomb, there's no great statement of faith that's involved in the story. There's no begging Jesus to intervene. No one would have thought that such is possible. Death is death, after all. Final. There is simply Jesus and his compassion for the woman in her grief and loss. Jesus takes it on himself to intervene. He reverses death and gives the son back to his mother alive and well. In fear and in joy the crowds praise God. A great prophet has risen among us and God has visited his people as it says in chapter 7 verse 16. And that story spread everywhere and led directly to the remarkable interaction with John the Baptist that we have in our text. So let's start again. If you don't mind me reading uh, over some of these, these same texts, just to keep them fresh in our minds. Luke chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Now the disciples of John reported to him about all of these things, these things that we've just been talking about. And when John had summoned two particular disciples, he sent them to the Lord. Now, it's not said by Luke, but you have to remember that this interaction of reporting to John takes place somewhere in lockup. There probably wasn't a big penitentiary or a dungeon or anything like that, but John was under guard by Herod Antipas. So they come to him and tell him about these things. And he picks two of his disciples. He's got a group of disciples like Jesus does. And he sent them to the Lord with this question. Are you the one who is coming, or should we expect someone else? And when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is coming, or should we expect someone else? Some people here who have counted themselves as disciples trained by John the Baptist were among those walking with Jesus, and they take the report back to John, who's, as we said, being held under guard by Herod Antipas. Now, Herod Antipas is the son of the infamous Herod the Great, the, one, the king that uh, commits the slaughter of the babies in the story of Jesus' uh, of Jesus' birth. Herod Antipas was a client ruler, not really a king officially by any means, though we'd like to sort of sport himself as a king. He was a client ruler that the Romans had put in charge of Galilee. 
He wanted to function as a Jewish king like his father had been. But officially he was, to use the terminology of the day, he was a regional ruler, a tetrarch, a ruler of a quarter is literally what that means, of a section within the Roman province of Syria. I put on the front of the notes uh, there a picture of a coin from, uh, from Herod Antipas. And um, the copper coins didn't show, that he made didn't show his face. He was a good Jew in that way, and he avoided such images because he didn't want, want to antagonize the people that he ruled. But rather, they show the spreading reeds that grew along the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River. That's what you see on that little picture there with the stem going up and the little branches coming out, the reed that, that Herod Antipas chose for his own symbol. And it has the inscription, if you figure out how to read it, uh, of Her it means of Herod Tetrarch uh, going around the edge of the coin. He recognized the potential danger of a powerful prophetic preacher like John the Baptist. And he had him arrested, both for personal reasons about his wife, but also just for the general uh, problem of having someone with such a following out in public and so forth. And he locked him up. So John is in prison for his courageous stand against Herod Antipas. Now Luke Luke, in the gospel, back in chapter 3, has told us great things about John's preaching and the baptisms in the Jordan that he had for all kinds of people, including, if you remember, even tax collectors, like Jesus later welcomed tax collectors, and even soldiers, soldiers of Herod Antipas, maybe, or maybe Roman soldiers even. Who knows? John had talked very pointedly about the greater one who was coming after him. He talked about his baptism of fire and the Holy Spirit. We'd expect when the reports about Jesus came to John through the disciples that he was still training, that he would celebrate and rejoice. But Jesus, mm, Jesus is disconcerting. John's in prison, after all. Where's Jesus? Jesus is not in prison. As John had trained his disciples, he led them to the wilderness, and the people left the cities behind to come to him in the wilderness. There he helped his disciples to learn the discipline of fasting that is mentioned by Luke earlier in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 33, that they practice fasting very often. A rigorous environment in the wilderness and the rigor of fasting. Jesus isn't fasting in the desert. He's in the towns, among people who flock to him. He's at banquets, even with those tax collectors. Remember after he calls Levi? He describes his ministry as a wedding feast. There doesn't seem to be much fire and judgment around him. So even this great man, who seemed to be the very model of the great Elijah, uh, shall we say, finds Jesus unexpected. He's not like he would have thought he would be. Instead of sending a message of celebration and affirmation to Jesus, John picks two disciples, 
He sends them to Jesus with a very pointed question, a strange question perhaps to our ears, but it is the great question for John. And note, notice that Luke, as he recounts it, gives that question in full twice. He wants us to notice. Are you the one who is coming, or should we expect someone else? Now, for us today, the question may just sound weird. Or uh, we may have things come to mind like, uh, well, I don't know, it's almost a ladder, another generation down, like The Matrix, the movie The Matrix. Neo, are you the one? The one that Morpheus is always talking about? But John lived in and with the scriptures of Israel. His question throbs with the story of Israel, its promises and disappointments, its hopes and uncertainties, its trust in God. There was this hope of God's intervention, the coming of an anointed king, a messiah, a new deliverance from enslavement under foreign empires, a hope of renewal. Are you the one who is coming, or should we expect someone else? Now, Jesus could have, maybe we might think he should have, simply said, yes, I am. I would have done it very well for me, I tell you. He might have even added, John, how could you even ask such a question? But Jesus understands the question and the burden of history that it bears. And he knows that the answer to the question changes the world, changes the meaning of John's own life. That's at stake. The relation of the whole world to its creator and God is at stake. Has that one who is coming from God come, or has he not? Is Jesus that one? So Jesus, at least as Luke narrates it for us here, answers, but not with words. Luke 7, verses 21 to 23. At that very time, Jesus healed many from diseases and scourges and evil spirits, and he graciously granted sight to many who were blind. Then as a response, he said to them, go and report to John what you've seen and heard. Blind people are seeing again. Lame people are walking. Lepers are being cleansed. And deaf people are hearing. Dead people are being raised. Impoverished people are hearing an announcement of good news. And blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble because of me. Jesus answers with actions. We're ready for it. Of course, we've been reading the Gospel of, of Luke, but the people around him haven't been reading the Gospel of Luke. And even marvels of healing don't really tell you anything except that they are marvels just by themselves. They have to be a language in order to be an answer. 
But Jesus knows intimately the language of Scripture that he shares with John. His actions are powerful words as he are those actions are words as he enacts the words of Isaiah and Malachi, etc. John had put his question in the language that draws its meaning and force from Scripture, such as the powerful words of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It's there on the backside of your, of your notes there. See, I'm sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, indeed he is coming, says Yahweh of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Malachi's challenging promise echoes in John's question. But how would one know the Lord, when the Lord will suddenly come? Prophetic scriptures, again, step in. That language that, that they lived in and breathed in, that, that shaped their expectations of life and of, the, and of all the things that might flow out of the situation in which they live. Jesus enacts the words of Isaiah 35, 3 through 6. For our call to worship, we read Isaiah 35, 1 and 2. And so these are the words that immediately follow after our call to worship this morning. He trusts that John can read the actions clearly because he knows the language. He formulated his question precisely in, the, in this language. So Isaiah says, strengthen the weak hands. Make firm the feeble. That's what I need with this, this surgery. Uh, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Or listen again to Isaiah's words in another, another passage in chapter 29 of Isaiah. They even sort of sound like a description of Jesus' struggles with the, with the Pharisees. And the, word, and the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and you would expect some destruction to come, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things for this people, God says, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish. In that day the deaf shall hear, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see, the meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. That's drawn from verses 13 and 14 and then 18 and 19 of that 29th chapter of Isaiah. Or remember the words that Jesus chose to read when he went to Nazareth, Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm going to look at in Isaiah at verses 1 and 2 and just think about meditating on this. The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me 
because Yahweh has anointed me to announce good news to the impoverished. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of recompense of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus' deeds are words of celebration that say not only do I relieve the particular needs of this particular person? Do I bring a change of life and give their life back to this particular person? But God's also that God's ancient promises are breaking, and they are here. Only God, only the one who is coming from God, only God's anointed king, only the Messiah, only God could do these things. And in doing them, with their grace and power and love, God's image and our understanding of God comes to new, surprising clarity. It's very disconcerting if you've had one view of God. And it really doesn't matter how nice the new view is. If it's a change from what you've always held, it's disconcerting. And that change comes. It's very disconcerting. It's easy to be thrown off by being shown God in a new way. Something outside the traditional purity exclusions that were so important. And the rigorous fasting. So Jesus says, watch out. Don't stumble. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble because of me. It was very possible to look at Jesus and say, that's not the way I've read the story up to now. That's not what I was expecting. That's not the view that I've been taught in synagogue school or Sunday school or whatever all along through my life. But is it Jesus? Jesus is disconcerting and challenging. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble because of me. And so he sends the messenger disciples back to John. But then it doesn't stop. The story goes on because Jesus is, is aware that it's not only John who has questions. Jesus knows that the crowds surrounding him carry those same kinds of questions, that same quest, um, but in their own way and with their own experience in the past. They haven't been John the Baptist. Luke chapter 7, verses 24 to 28. After John's messengers left, Jesus began to talk to the crowds about John. I love the way Kyle read all of this. What is it you went out into the wilderness to behold? A reed shaken by wind? No? Then what did you go out to see? A person dressed in soft garments? Well, you know, those in splendid robes and luxury are living in the royal palaces. So what was it really that you 
went out to see? A prophet? Yes, indeed. I'm telling you something even more than the prophet. He, that is John, is the one about whom it's written. Look, and he quotes from Malachi 3.1, sort of mashed together with, uh, with uh, Exodus 23.20, so it's not really, a, it's more paraphrased than a quote. These things are written. Look, I'm sending my messenger before your face who will prepare your way ahead of you. I'm telling you, Jesus says, not one of all, this interesting image, not one of all those born of women is greater than John. That's pretty inclusive for the whole of the human species. Not one of all those born of women is greater than John. But one who's very small in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Just think about that last little bit and you sort of get the way in which Jesus works. There's different kinds of greater. You and I are not greater than John the Baptist. But the kingdom of God, the era, the, the time of God's working marks us out with a different kind of understanding, a different kind of knowledge. We are on the other side of Jesus, if you will. So they went out into the wilderness to John. That's where John was. That's where the news was coming from, that John was down there in that wilderness beyond the Jordan, or on both sides probably of the Jordan at different times. That's, they were looking for something. That's what drew them out into that desolation of the wilderness. These people now around Jesus had gone out to John looking for a Messiah, an anointed king. And so Jesus pushes them. He pushes them to think deeply. But there's always with Jesus a light touch that very few others have ever been able to master. They went into the wilderness seeking. What were they seeking? What? Were you looking for a reed shaken by the wind? Jesus uses Herod's standard symbol for him himself. You really wanted this little Jewish puppet king? Is that what you were going for? You wanted that? Blown about by the winds of Rome? Surely not. That's not what you were after. Let's try another symbol. Another symbol for a king. Did you go out looking for fancy robes, soft garments, well, that's a common kind of king. But you don't find them in the hard wilderness and in the desert. Hmm. Go back to their palaces. Go back to the, the places they've built for themselves. You already know that's where those kings are. Think. What were you really looking for when you trekked out to John? It was more complicated than just finding a king. <clears throat> you knew that you needed a prophet, and you found one indeed. John's own identity partly answers 
John's own question. He is a prophet who is at a gateway to a new era. He comes himself and points out ahead to another beyond him. But he already embodied some of that new vision, some of that new era. He welcomed ordinary people. He welcomed those soldiers. He welcomed those tax collectors. He was the last prophet of the old, but creating a break that opened to a new vision of God in God's anointed king. That's what makes him supremely great, as Jesus says, but also points to that anointed king and the kingdom of God that exists now on a vast new scale. The one who's very small in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Wow. There's a lot one could go into there, but let's just let that sort of flow over us. Like the people there did. Luke 7, 29 to 30. Now when all the people, including the tax collectors, heard this, they declared that God is just since they had been plunged in water by John's baptism. But, the Pharisees and teachers of the law frustrated God's purpose for themselves by not being baptized by John. Many in the crowd, Luke emphasizes even the tax collectors, realized that it was exactly John who had opened the gate to them. But there's a sense of tragedy in that second sentence. It suggests that Jesus wanted the Pharisees and teachers of the Torah as part of his ministry. It was indeed God's purpose for them. But they were put off by the newness of John's baptism or something. They refused it. And their rejection of John led to their rejection of Jesus. Refusing God's good purpose. For them. That's a very loaded idea. God wants them in one direction that things they give themselves to lead them to break God's purpose. Jesus concludes this reflection on John with a very pointed parable of the difficulty that we humans have with the ways of God. He uses here, whenever you, in what I'm about to read, whenever you have the word human, it's the Greek word anthropos, which can be translated in a variety of ways. It means a, a human being is over against God or is over against animals, usually. And he uses it several times in this passage, and it would be easy to translate it in different ways, uh, no doubt. But I have translated it each time as human, even though it can sound a little bit strange just so that we can follow the plays on words. Luke chapter 7, verses 31 to 35. So, what comparison shall I use for the humans of this generation? Just what are they like? They're like little children, like the ones that sit in the town square and call back and forth to each other. 
I love the way Kyle did this. We played you the flute and you did not dance. We sang a song of crying and you did not weep. You see, John the Baptist has come. But eating no bread and drinking no wine. So what do you say? Mmm, he has a demon. The son of the human has come, both eating and drinking. So what do you say? Look, a human who's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Still, wisdom was declared just from all her children. People, that means me, and maybe you, are hard to please. We want what we want, and we choke on anything that doesn't fit our desires. People search spiritually, but often we simply find ourselves. Somebody else may play the flute, but we don't want to dance. Somebody else may sing a dirge, but we don't want to cry. We're looking for something but block ourselves off from deep exploration. Are you the one who's coming? Well, John, you yourself have come. See, John the Baptist has come, eating no bread and drinking no wine. So what do you say? He's got a demon. John was too different from us humans, too prophetic, too rigorous, too much out in the desert. We've got a box for that. That box says, oh, something's wrong with him. He's weird. He's got a demon. Yes, Jesus came. The son of the human, with all of the echoes that that has, going back to Daniel and everything. He's come, human indeed. The son of the human has come, Luke writes, both eating and drinking. So what do you say? Look, a human, anthropos, who's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Both are God's emissaries. Very different look about them. They are not in the same places, surrounded by the same circumstances, but they share in the same great event, playing different roles in the one event that God is doing. People had ready boxes for them, categories that made it easy to be blind to the great work of God. <clears throat> but what God is doing is vast, complex, varied, real, beautiful, life-giving. You have to see it. You have to live inside it. When you see and hear, like those emissaries from John that Jesus sent back to him, telling them to, to tell what they had seen and heard, and when you recognize God in it, when you're with that centurion and know in your bones the authority that Jesus carries in himself, when you're with that bereft widow 
and experience the life-giving compassion of Jesus' power that can reverse even death, then you can see Jesus. That's where Luke is leading us. He has indeed come. He is the one who is coming. He is God coming to his people. He is his people. He is the love and compassion and justice of God. He has power to bring retribution, but he gives life and renewal. And let me just make a last, say a last word. Let me see where, where I am here. I'm, take one more word. But as we watch Luke showing all of this, it's re that's really important. He's very conscious of this as he leads us into these explorations. But that continues on even on the level of not just Luke, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have four Gospels. And it's one way of, of God bringing Jesus into your particular heart and mind. We're all here in one room, but we're very different, and we celebrate that difference among us. We have different life experiences, different backgrounds, different futures, all kinds of things. But at the same time, we are part of this great event of God's love. But God is complicated and challenging. And we, have, we want him to be neat and keep things nicely in order. And when you ask him, are you the one to come, just say yes if it's yes or no if it's no. But God doesn't do it that way. We, what we would like is one good gospel that had full footnotes and a videotape for the whole thing. That would be good for us. But God gives us Luke. But he also already gave us Mark, because Luke's looking at Mark as he writes. And he gives us Matthew. And he gives us John. And every single solitary one of us in this room, and all people all over the world, all of us have come to know Jesus through those Gospels, as well as through the testimonies of people who led us into them. But those four Gospels mean that, well, I'll point at Steve there, or Kyle, or many others of you, if I, I don't want to make anybody uncomfortable. But every one of us knows that Jesus in a different way. God loves that complexity, that fullness, that vibrancy. He's made it so it can be no other way. We have to approach Jesus through these diverse testimonies. And so Jesus comes into your heart in a particular shape. He is the one who still comes in our own experience. Jesus knows what he's, that what he's doing looks very different to the crowds from what John used to do. 
And you and I, as we read Gospels, will see Jesus in different ways, or even at different times in our own lives. But both, all, are part of God's multi-sided wisdom, bringing God's grace to all her children. And so he, Luke, Luke uh, concludes the, the, the uh, discourse of Jesus with that remarkable statement that Jesus makes. Wisdom was declared just from all her children. It echoes what the tax collectors had said about God. They said God was just because of what God had done for them. And Jesus says that's really what's happening. It's the wisdom that is God showing itself. Wisdom shines. Justice shines. God is there among us and for us. Amen.